Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians 2, Philippians 2, uh, verse 19 through 30. So I'm going to read that and then pray, and we'll be in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has an amazing power behind it as we even read it just now. This is the best sermon there is. is just a reading of your word. But because, Lord, we're sinful, we need someone to come and explain the scriptures and exhort us to Christ. And Lord, I, <laughs> I just confess that I am not equipped for that. I am not capable of that, nor am I worthy of anything like that. But in your sovereignty, you've seen fit to let me stand here this morning and preach the scriptures. And so I, I just pray, Father, for an amazing measure of your spirit. I confess that I am in absolute dependence for you to come now. Would you speak not only through me, but to me and all my friends here? We love you and we just confess your, um, we we need you and we we love Christ and we pray that his gospel would be sweet this morning as we look at your scriptures. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Philippians 2, 19 through 30. And what we're going to see here, if you noticed as we're reading, There's really two kind of examples of godly Christian character being held out to us, or two godly Christian examples of Christ-likeness being held out to us with Timothy and Epaphroditus. And that's really the text we're going to look at. However, before we jump in and look at those those verses, um, I really want you to understand that this is really four godly examples. Um, And we're just going to be looking at these two. The four godly examples are, if you go over to chapter 2, verses 1 and 11, Paul actually starts with Jesus and talks about the example of Christ and being incarnate and starts with him. And now we're looking at, in this particular verse, the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And even goes over into chapter 3, Paul gives an example of himself in chapter 3, the first 11 verses or so. And so really there's four examples of Christian character that he's giving. And what he wants in all of us, as he's kind of unpacked all all those four different people, and of course, starting with Jesus, our Savior, where it all begins, it's the cornerstone, the capstone, the, where everything starts. 
you can see over in 317 where he communicates to us, now that I've given you all of these examples, I want you to do something with those examples. I don't want you to just look at them and be like, oh, great examples. That's awesome. I'm going to continue on my day. There's something he wants us to do with those examples. Look at 317 and we'll know what, what's the point of reading this. Um, 317, it says this. Brothers, join in imitating me. Well, now that's pretty, that's pretty presumptuous for Paul to look at people and say, hey, I've got it together so well. You need to join in imitating me. But if we know 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, follow my example as I follow Christ. And so he's not just arrogantly saying, follow me. I've got it all together. He's saying, as long as I am following Jesus Christ, fixated on Jesus Christ, pressing towards Jesus Christ, everything that I'm doing is pressed and pushing towards Jesus, then you can follow me. Because that's in essence following Christ. So here we see in 317, back over to the text, he's saying, as he's laid out these four examples of Christian behavior, godly behavior, Christ-likeness, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk, uh, watch this, according to the example you have in us. And the us, again, are the people that he's been laying out for us. And really chapter 2 and and, and into chapter 3. Now, what we're going to do is narrow down on Timothy and Epaphroditus. Stephen did for us uh, Jesus in, in chapter 2, and we're going to look at next week chapter 3 because there's some, some specific things I want you to see in that. But what I want us to understand is as we're looking at um, these two people here in 19 through 30, that's really kind of set in a, in a larger context of really four examples, sp- specifically beginning with Jesus, who is the, the cornerstone. Now, what Paul is doing, <clears throat> he's not just kind of saying, uh, I know this is a good idea. I really, really want Timothy and Epaphroditus to think I'm a pretty complimentary guy. So I'm going to include them in my letter. I'm going to say some nice, th- nice things about them and send it out so that I can just flatter my friends and so I can self-congratulate myself in chapter 3 and it doesn't look as bad because I've said some good things about them. But what he's wanting to, he's not like, you know, we do on Twitter, like Twitter at so-and-so is the best person in the whole world. Everybody see how humble and complimentary I am? I, that's a humble brag right there. So it's not, it's not, we're not looking, for, Paul's not doing humble brags here. What he's wanting to do, he has one specific aim. He's wanting to provide for us clear Christian examples that younger, less experienced Christians can look at and emulate. There's an example of someone that follows Jesus. I want to look at them, and I want to emulate them. I want to follow them as much as I possibly can. I want to do the things that they're doing. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of trouble. Um, I said in the first service, my preaching professor in seminary would not like this sermon. This is why. And hopefully I'm going to tell you why you wouldn't like it, and then clean up that mess I just made that I, by saying that, and then we'll understand what I'm doing. All right, so here's the deal. In seminary, my professor, Dr. Medill, said, don't ever tell people when you're preaching, be like so-and-so. You hold out the life of Joseph. Don't ever say, be like Joseph, be like Paul. Why do they want to be like Joseph and Paul? They're sinners just like you and me. You need to tell them to press into Jesus. He's the one. Like, so, and I'm going to look at you today, and I'm going to say, here's Timothy, and here's Epaphroditus. Be like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so you should say, that's problematic, Fud. They're sinners just like me. Exactly. Now, here's the thing. Don't miss what Paul did for us because he started it all with Jesus in chapter 2. So there's a caution I want to say from the outset. I don't want anybody to think that you're a Christian because you imitated another Christian. That's not what I'm aiming at. 
I'm not aiming at you to think that you're a Christian because you emulated Timothy or Epaphroditus. Instead, I want you to know that you're a Christian because you have faith in Jesus. And that's what my professor would say. Don't tell him to mimic or be like people. Whenever you preach, you're after one thing. Whenever you preach, you want to preach Jesus in such a way that when the Holy Spirit comes behind your words, it hits their heart. And what's happening in their heart is they're going to express or put faith and trust back in Jesus. You're aiming for faith. You're not aiming for an example for them to emulate. You're aiming for faith. So when you preach, preach for faith. And so as I'm going to hold out Timothy and Epaphroditus and say, hey, you should be like Timothy and Epaphroditus, know that I'm preaching for faith in Jesus, okay? Now I'm going to explain that because that sounds complicated. Remember, in chapter 2, he, he begins it all with our Savior and says, the incarnate Savior came, or Jesus incarnated himself and went to a cross. And it says this in, in, in verse 8, and being found in human form, he human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore god has highly exalted him so everything that i'm going to say holding out the example of timothy and epaphroditus is founded on the fact that if you are a believer so as i hold out these two examples and say be like these things know that last week's sermon specifically and if you haven't listened to i just encourage you to find it on itunes and listen you need to know that that what we said last week in, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is absolutely key to understand today. When I say, do this stuff, you have to know in Philippians 2, as we're believers in Jesus, we're working from being saved, not for being saved. The things that we do for Jesus as we try to live for Christ, we're not doing that to gain right standing with God. We're not doing that to now be loved by God. Instead, we already have right standing with God. We already are loved with God. We are already declared as righteous as we'll ever be, even then when we're in heaven. You are, if you're in Christ, declared righteous right now. And based on that, you live for Christ. And this is what we said last week in 12 and 13, where we are supposed to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So we know that there's a responsibility of us as believers to do all that we can for Christ, which includes emulating ourselves to good Christian examples. And all the while, while we do that, verse 13 in chapter 2 tells us, for it's God who's working in you. So there's a responsibility of us to do everything we can. And while we do it, all the while it was God working in us to will and work for him. So as I'm holding out these examples, I want you to understand that I'm preaching for faith in Jesus. Paul starts with our Savior. We're starting with our Savior. And everything that I'm going to say that you should do is, as you look at Timothy and Epaphroditus and their examples, is, is to say, with your spiritual eyes, you focus on Jesus. With your physical eyes, you focus on examples that point you to be like Christ. You'll see the distinction? Today's sermon is telling you to watch, let your physical eyes look at examples. All the while, while your spiritual eyes are always focused on Jesus. Now, two godly examples of Christ's likeness are given to us in chapter 19, I'm sorry, chapter 2, 19 through 24, and that's Timothy 25 through 30, and that's Epaphroditus. But before we jump into that, I want to um, show you one specific thing about the model, the biblical model given to us for decision-making in the will of God. Some of you might be on the precipice of the next decision or the, the step before the, you're finishing high school and you're like, which college do I go to? Do I go to this college or this college? Neither one of them is sinful to go to, and I don't know which one to go to. Or 
you know, which guy do or girl do I marry? They both seem perfectly great, and I just don't know which one to pursue. Maybe you have like four options. Maybe you have zero options. You're just hoping for one. But the point is, like, <laughs> if you have these options set out before you, and neither one of them are sinful. It's not like, you know, here's a big horrible sin, and this is good. Which one should I do? I don't know what I should do. Obviously, you should do the thing that's glorifying to God. But a lot of times, we have those things set up for us, whether we're supposed to marry this person or not, go to this particular college or not, take that job or not. Which one do I take? And there's two things kind of set out before us. Neither one of them are sinful. We're asking people around us, which one should I do? And they're saying, it's up to you. Notice how Paul does his. This is really important as we understand the biblical model of decision-making in the will of God. Paul wants to go to Philippi. You can see that uh, in 23-24. I hope to send him to you, and I also just to see how things are going, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. I'm going to make plans to go to Philippi. It would be a great thing for me to go to Philippi. I really miss you people in Philippi. I love you people in Philippi. I'm going to make plans to come to Philippi. I'm going to do everything I can to go to Philippi. What happens? Paul never goes to Philippi. But that doesn't mean he's struggling with indecision. Oh, do I, do I go or not? Is it God's will that I go? Should I? Listen, when there's things set out before us, and neither one of them are sinful, you need to submit yourself to the providence of God and do what you want. Do what your heart desires because neither one are sinful. That's how it works. And here's the thing. Whichever one you want to do, you do it. And if God wants you to do it, you're going to end up doing it. And if he doesn't, he's going to keep you from it, just like here. That's the way it works. So, that's just a side note for you. Let's go ahead and look at some of these things as we <clears throat> understand these, these godly examples given to us. Now, before we look at that, I want to make uh, a case for you to help you understand that every single one of us are emulating somebody. There's, you can't say, well, I understand this is about people that we can look, have godly examples in front of us that I should be kind of doing, but I shouldn't, or maybe I should have somebody underneath me that I can, I can, emula- I can have, follow my example. But I'm not really into the whole following example mentorship thing right now. I'm kind of doing my own thing out here in left field, my own little things going on. Um, And I just want to make a case that no one is doing that. You ever wonder why kids that grow up in South Africa have the same accents as their parents? How come they don't have, you know, northern accents? How come whenever you're from South Georgia, you always sound like you're from South Georgia? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, why is it that you always have that exact same accent of the people you grew up around? Because there's never not a time where we're not modeling and emulating the people that are older than us. We're always doing that, and it's the same with spiritual realities. This is how D.A. Carson says it. So the question is not whether we shall learn from others by conscious or unconscious mimicry, but what we shall learn from them and from whom shall we learn it. We're always mimicking and, and watching people and doing the things that they do. So the question is not, who, not whether we're doing it, but what we're learning from them and from whom are we learning? So before we jump into these examples, let me just put some big questions out there that we can all get the ball rolling to think, all right, if this is the case, two Christian godly examples in Timothy and Paphroditus, I'm supposed to be looking at those people based on the gospel, based on what Christ has done, having people that I can um, follow their example and think about my own life. And if, I, if I'm a good example, I want to start asking you some questions. Who are you looking at and watching right now that's a follower of Jesus? Who are you looking at and watching that is going to lead you on closer to Christ? Who is it? Is there someone? Or is it no one? Because you are. It's just to the negative. Let me ask this question. Maybe it's the better question. Do you even care? 
you even care? Here's the second one. Who's watching you? Now, you may not realize anybody's watching. You can't clock out and say, I'm going to sit on the sideline and drink some Gatorade. No one's going to watch me. You're in the game, all right? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. You're in the game no matter what. Um, Who's watching you? Has the thought even crossed your mind that someone's watching you? And the same question, do you even care that someone's watching you? Because they are. Are you, with your life, pointing people to Jesus? If I were to follow you around the entire day, would people say, I want, if someone were to follow me around the entire day, I want them to say that my highest priority is Jesus. If they were to follow around me the entire day, I would have wanted to have shown them Jesus with the way I live for Christ, not anything else. So here's some questions for you to ask. Just some general questions about who you are as a person and the way you live your life for Christ. Now listen, these can come off extremely moralistic. That is not my desire. My desire is that based on your relationship with Christ, what do these things look like in your life? What, if they were to watch you when you fall around, what do you do when you get up? What's the first thing you do when you wake up? What do you do when you're on your own, when you're out by yourself and you're doing things? What do you do when you're at work? How do you work? Do you work hard? What do you do um, whenever you have free time? How do you use your free time? What is your free time focused towards? Just you. How do you talk with people? How do you interact with people? What's the overall dominant way that the conversation from you is towards people? Is it negative? Is it argumentative? Is it Christ-like? What are your values? If someone were to follow you around, what would they say are the things that you value? Now remember, those are very moralistic. You can ask that to a non-Christian, and they can maybe have some, some pretty good answers. I'm basing all this on Jesus and your relationship with him. So we're talking about the fact that you have people following you and that you should be following. And these are some of the overall questions. Um, So let's go ahead and look at these two examples that Paul gives us. And we'll explain a little bit. You can see here it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. So let me give you a little background on Timothy and Paul. First is, uh, Paul and Timothy met on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul, as soon as he became a believer, he was, he was a very type A, driven kind of guy. And all he wanted to do was kill Christians. And so whenever he became a Christian, his personality didn't change at all. He was a very type A, driven kind of guy. And all he wanted to do was to everybody to become a Christian. So as soon as he became a Christian, all I'm going to do is be a missionary. I'm going to go everywhere and tell everybody about Christ. Missionary journeys everywhere. Come on, who's with me? Punk, come on. No, he didn't say punk, but like he, that's all. If they said no, he would get mad at him. Say, I don't need you, John Mark. And so like that's in Acts. So basically, as soon as he became a believer, kind of. So he's, he's falling around. He's going around from town to town. And as he's on that missionary journey, he's very intense, wants to lead people to Christ. He comes up to Timothy and he, he meets Timothy. Tom, Timothy is a very young person uh, whenever he was converted. He was led to Christ by more than likely his mother and his grandmother. He was half Jewish and half Gentile. His dad was a Gentile. And his mother was, um, was Jewish. And so he was raised almost fully as a Jew, except for circumcision, which after he started going around with Paul on the missionary journeys, Paul did the circumcision himself as, before they went out on a minister. So I think they probably had a little bit of a rocky beginning in the friendship. Um, that's a little strange. Hey, old man, uh, we're going to do a circumcision before we start ministry. That's, I mean, that's not good. That's kind of a rocky relationship. Do what now? So uh, how come, never mind, I'm tangent. So just ask the question about Titus. Why not Titus? I mean, that's, that's if I'm Timothy, that's my question. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's all right. So, so that's, the, that's the kind of a rocky, maybe not rocky, but we see right here, 
where in the text, Paul says that he considers Timothy his spiritual son. We know that Timothy considers Paul his spiritual father. So based even on the rocky relationship they might have had, who knows? We could just all conjecture. We know that they were very much close, very close. So much so that Paul considered Timothy his spiritual son. Timothy considered Paul his spiritual father. They were very, very, very close to one another. So now that we know how close they were, look at this. He says, I and the Lord Jesus hope to send you Timothy, my son. So we can see how much he cares for the Philippians. He wants to send Timothy, his own son, somebody that he loved. And we know that later on, Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus, and Paul also wrote two pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy, to, Tim- to Timothy. So he he's very much has a deep concern and love for Timothy, and he cares about the Philippians so much. He goes, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you so that I may be cheered of your news. Now notice what he says about Timothy in verse 20. And this is what we want to be said of us. Okay, this is what we want to be said of us. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no one like him that's genuinely concerned for your welfare. So here's the first example for us. You should be genuinely concerned for people's welfare genuinely concerned all based on the gospel because christ was genuinely concerned for us by coming and incarnating himself and dying on the cross on the cross but you should be genuinely concerned for people you may have heard it said that people don't know how they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care i think that's true they need to know that you genuinely concern for them. And this concern that you have is not some kind of fake concern just so you can convert them to Jesus and then you feel good about yourself. That's not genuine concern. That's concern for yourself. What, he, what we, he's calling for is a deep, real love concern for people. And notice he says, not just a select few. He says, a deep concern for your, for your welfare. And he's calling for not just deep concern for a few people, but for all people. This is what Christ wants from us. Listen to this last verse in john the the gospel of john the very last verse says this now there are there are also many other things that jesus did where one of them um were every one of them to be written i suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written jesus did so many good things he had such a deep concern for other people he was genuinely concerned for other people's welfare that he did so many things that if someone to write down all the things that he did there wouldn't be enough books to contain all the things that he did the gospels are full of stories of jesus having a deep concern for all people and here's the thing it was very genuine very genuine therefore For us, a genuine, transparent interest in the well-being of others is what God is calling for us. Timothy lives this life out to them, and he's saying, I know who I can send. I can send Timothy to you, Philippians, because no one's more genuinely concerned for people. So here's the question. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of you? Would people, when they think about you, would they say, he has a deep, genuine concern for people? It's amazing. She has an amazing concern for other people. I've noticed in my own life, <laughs> I've got lots of room to grow here. This is how it works and plays out in my life. Maybe you're not as sinful as me, but this is how it works for me. Generally, whenever I think of something that I need done, I got, I got my list of, of things that I need done. I'll call or text or whatever somebody, and I, I'll get them on the phone or whatever, and I'll say, hey, um, I need for you to do something for me. 
and then I'll launch into it, and all of a sudden I'll realize <laughs> the Holy Spirit kind of prompts me and says, uh, you just launched into all the things that you need, and you didn't talk to them all at all about the things that are probably going on in their life. Stop, and so I have to apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just launched right into all of my concerns. I didn't even think of you as a person. I just thought of you as the accomplisher of my checklist, and I don't have a deep concern, it seems like, for, for your welfare, and I should have a deep concern for your welfare. So erase all the things I just said, and let's start back over it, because you, you, you expressed some things that are going on in your life to me just yesterday or day before or whatever. How are those things going? How can I help those things? And maybe I don't even get to talk about my thing. This is what it's like to have a deep concern for all people. You're all staring at me like, wow, you are wicked. Listen, maybe you don't have that. I have that, all right? So I have a, a, a desire to get things done, I guess, which is dreadfully sinful because it seems to have that I don't have a deep, genuine concern for people's welfare, but I want to. And I see it in my life, and I want the Lord to change it. And perhaps you, you might see it in your life. But this is what it means to be a Christ follower. You're not just searching and seeking out to get your checklist done for the day, stomping over people, not being concerned for them. Christ wants that we have a deep concern for other people. Notice what it says in 2.4. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is what, what God wants for us. This is exactly the way we're supposed to live, that we have a deep concern for other people. Now notice uh, in 21, let's keep going. I want to show you something else. Not only does he have a deep, genuine concern for other people, look what it says. I have no one that I can send to him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So here's the second thing about Timothy, and I'm just going to say it directly towards you. Um, You should seek the interest of Jesus Christ. You seek the wealth and, and, and or not the wealth, the help of a genuine concern for other people, and you also seek the interest of Jesus Christ. Timothy puts the glory of Jesus Christ above other things. Nothing takes the priority over the life of Christ and his life. Christ's glory is not placed on the same level of other things. It's always placed on a higher level of his own over his interests. He's not going to be self-seeking. Instead, he's going to be concerned with the interests of Christ. So is that in your life? Is, is the overall theme of your life an interest in the things of Christ? And I want you to notice how Paul really puts these two things together. The interests of others and the interests of Christ. That he, call, he, he puts them together as one if you read it all. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own tr- interests, not those of Jesus Christ. For Paul, this is one and the same. As you seek the, the interest and the glory of Jesus Christ, you do that by, be, by being genuinely concerned for, your, uh, for other people. Now, where in those two things is self-seeking? Getting your checklist done. It's not. So church body, you should be engaged in the interests of Christ by laboring and building up this church body. You press on and into and lift up the glory of Jesus by seeking the interests of others and serving them over yourself. Let's look at the next one. In verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He's been a servant of the gospel alongside with Paul. So here's the third one. He has proven himself as a servant. You should be a proven servant of others. Now you can see it says a proven servant of the gospel. Let me just read you um, a couple texts from the gospels. 
where Christ talks about what it means to be a servant. One's in Matthew 20 and one's in John 13. In Matthew 20 it says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must be... First among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came to serve, not to be served, and he is our our example. In John 13, right after he finished washing the disciples' feet, these are the words he said to him. After he he washed the disciples' feet, showing the, the, um, the, the role of a servant, this is what he says in John 13. After he had washed their feet and he put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've just done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. So he just said, you call me teacher and Lord, but I want to talk to you about being a servant. He says, if then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For if I have given you an example that that you should do just as I have done, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That's key. If Jesus is our master and he takes the role of servant and he's our master and we're not greater than our master, then what are we? We're servants of the the greatest servant master. And so he says, um, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent, sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So as we're being told to be a servant, you're blessed if you do them. You should do them. You shouldn't just say, yeah, I should do that. I'm going to get around to being a servant of men one day. You know, one day, whenever I have kids, then I have to serve. So that's the day I'll start. <laughs> that's the truth. But you should start now. You should start now. God is calling you to be a servant. Remedy, God wants us to be servants, to be Christ-like, not to serve ourselves, but to serve other people. And serve by telling them the gospel. So that's the first uh, Example for us in Timothy. And let's go ahead and look at the next one, Epaphroditus. And it says in verse 25, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother. Now, Epaphroditus was a native from the city of Philippi. And so if you've been here with us, you kind of know the story. Basically, there were some people in Philippi. They heard Paul was in prison. They kind of collect a gift up. We, we don't know exactly. Probably was money, but a gift. And they think, okay, we've got to get this gift over to Paul in jail. Epaphroditus, you look like the perfect guy to take this gift. We want you to take it for us and go over there and give it to him. So Epaphroditus willingly goes over to uh, the jail, get, delivers the gift to Paul while he's there, becomes very sick, almost to the point of death, which we just read. God heals him. He's restored. While all that's going on, Paul writes the letter, this letter, what we have called Philippians. And then as he's thankful for it, he puts the le- this letter to the, uh, to the Philippians in Epaphroditus's hand. And he says, Epaphroditus, go back home and be with them with your friends. And so he's saying, I'm sending here, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, along with this letter. He's sending him back. So that's who Epaphroditus was. He became ill all the way to the point of death, as we know. But Paul now, he's been restored. God has healed him, and he's sending him back. So I want you to just notice here in verse number 25, Paul's going to give him five names, five different appellations, if you will, of, of, of what he thinks about him. And we're going we're gonna to kind of tick them off one at a time. I want you to see them. But you can see it here. I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister. So therefore, you should be, and I'm going to explain what they all mean, you should be a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, and a minister. 
And let me explain to you what I mean by each one of those. It, it's not like, well, as long as I get three out of five, then that's pretty good. Or, you know, four out of five, that's an 80. That's passing. That's even a C. This, you should be all five. This is what Christ expects for you to shoot for all these. So let me explain. Number one, you should be a brother or sister. And, and what this means is, um, let, me ask it a, let me explain it to you by asking a question. Do you have a brother or sp- sister close to you? A spiritual brother or sister? Someone that knows you very closely, very deeply, very intimately, knows the things that's going on in your life, knows what you're struggling. Someone that whenever you are struggling spiritually, you can go to and have that conversation with. Now listen, you should have that person if you're married and your spouse. There's no question. that Your spouse should know those things. But you also, also should have someone of the same gender. If you're a girl, it should be a girl. If you're a guy, it should be a guy. That's your brother or sister. You should have that person in your life. You should have them. Now, are you one and do you have one? And what we mean is, whenever you're struggling, whenever things are going on, yes, you have your spouse. But I also have this person, whenever I'm, maybe you're sinning against your spouse and you need someone to call it out in front of you. You need to have that person. At Remedy, the way we've set it up is... Um, more than likely that person's in what's known as your gospel-centered discipleship group. We have community groups where, you know, groups of 12 to 15 meet in er- local area homes, and inside that we have gospel-centered discipleship groups, a, a group of two, maybe three people, where they, they are your brothers and sisters in the faith. They know you so deeply, so intimately. And that's not just some kind of random thing that the church has set up so that we can know all your, all your junk. I don't know your junk, just them. They don't, like, report it back to me or something. You should have that. You should have this person in your life. It's set up here at Remedy. So if you're, if you're in a tender of Remedy, this is your place. You should be in a gospel-centered discipleship group, and you should be in a community group where you can be a brother and a sister to people. Second thing, a fellow worker. You should notice here how Paul commends Epaphroditus' hard work that is given unto Christ. Paul commends hard work. Believers, we should be hard workers, not just in our job, but also for Jesus. We should be hard workers that um, know that, as Colossians 3 says, that we are, are workers for Christ. We're not just doing our work for our boss, but we're doing our work as unto the Lord. And so we should be hard workers for him. And after he says hard worker, he almost kind of wants to upgrade it really fast. Not only are you a hard worker, you're a hard, you're a fellow, not only are you a fellow worker, you're a fellow soldier. A fellow soldier. Now let me flip over to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And let's look at how Paul understands what it means to be a soldier of Christ. In, in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, <clears throat> Paul's going to um, employ the metaphor of soldier when he's talking about um, being a believer. Look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses. Notice how many generations just in this one verse in verse 2 are being affected with the gospel. And he says, And what you have learned from me, Paul, to you, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, third generation, whoever Timothy tells, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Four generations. It's pretty amazing. Paul's saying, What you've learned from me, Timothy, you should tell to other people so that they can tell other people. Four generations of spiritual discipleship going on there. And then he says, after he, after he says that, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So now we're starting to get an understanding about what it means to be a good soldier. Look what he says. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So as a believer, 
you're in God's army. We're not going to sing the song. But you are a soldier for the Lord. And what he's saying here is, since you're in God's army, you don't have the choice to say, well, um, I want to get entangled in civilian pursuits. There's, there's lots of things going on in the world that I'm really, really involved in and really curious about. And so instead of living for Christ and being in his army, those things pretty se- seem pretty awesome to me. I just want to go do those things. That's not what he says. Since you're in the army of God, you don't entangle yourself in those uh, pursuits because your aim is to please the one who enlisted you, Jesus. Jesus enlisted me, therefore I'm a soldier for him. So all the things I do are aiming to please him. So, Calvin, as he's writing this, says that Paul uses the term soldier, saying that soldiers are so engaged in incessant warfare, continual warfare, because Satan does not allow them to promote the gospel without continually bringing conflict on them. And he says, so let those then whose job it is to edify the church, and that's you, if you're part of this church, your job is to edify the church, not just me. All of us should be doing that. Know that war has been pronounced against them. Well, that's pretty serious. If you're a fellow soldier, if you're in Christ, you don't have the luxury of saying, I'm going to sit out this. If you're in Christ, all of us need to never forget this. You need to be aware of this. Don't miss this. Christian, you are in a war. Every single day, you're in a war. And here's the key. Every moment you wake up, every single day, know this, that Satan has declared war on your soul. The Bible says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, ready to destroy you. Every day, life is war. There's not a moment where you can just sit back and cruise. Every single day, Satan has declared war on you. Therefore, if we've not prepared ourselves daily for war, we will be defeated. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm not saying that. I don't think you can. But I can say clearly that he is prepared to destroy your soul and you need to be preparing yourself daily because you are in war. John Piper says that we should have a wartime mentality. Because life is war. And since we're a soldier in God's army, we should not be a casualty in this war. So we we shouldn't let ourselves slumber and be interested in the world's trivialities. But instead, because we only get one life for Christ, make it count. So not only does he call him a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier, he also says he's a messenger and a minister so let's look at these two he's a messenger because he was the one who brought the gift to paul he was the messenger incidentally if you've read romans 10 14 through 17 we are also messengers who bring the gift of the gospel to people and so whenever you're a messenger you're bringing the gift of the gospel to people and you can even see after that when it says he calls him a minister those things go hand in hand when he says you're messenger and minister to my need You are also a minister. I want you to realize, if you're a believer in Christ, you are a minister. A minister is not someone who wears a face mic on Sundays and went to seminary and studied Greek and can perform wedding ceremonies. That's not what a minister is. I know that I am a minister, but I'm saying, if you're a believer, every single one of you are ministers, and I am no more significant than you. And I'm going to put some Bible under that assertion. So I want you to hear this. 
Look, listen to 2 Corinthians 5. He just got through talking about how we are no longer, um, our old person has been, has been cast off and now we're new people. And this is what he says, starting at verse 18. He's saying that, that gospel that's happened to you, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us. That's not ministers like pastors, that's Christians. He's reconciled us to himself and gave us, that's all Christians, the ministry of reconciliation. That means every single one of you is a minister, a minister of reconciliation, meaning you want to reconcile God, holy God, with sinful men. You want to see them come, become reconciled. And the only way that happens is through Jesus. So every single one of you is a minister. Every single one of you is a minister. I'm not saying you're pastors. I'm saying you're ministers. Now listen to this. This is where it gets awesome. That is, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God has been reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them because all the trespasses were punished on the cross. Instead, he's entrusted us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, this is amazing. Every time I read this, I get chills. Anytime you tell the gospel to somebody, this is what 2 Corinthians 5.20 says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for, for Christ. I just preached the gospel to someone that's an unbeliever. What just happened is not that I, a person, talked and that alone is all that happened. Look at he says. God making his appeal through us. <sighs> Wrap your mind around that for a second. When you tell an unbeliever the gospel, God... The creator of all things has just, by the power of the Spirit, spoken through you and has literally, through you, God has made an appeal through you to the heart of an unbeliever. And what is the thing that you've just said? He says, we implore you, this is the message we say that God's making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So anytime you share the gospel with an unbeliever, God himself is speaking through you to them. And the message is, be reconciled to God. Every single one of you, the Bible says, is a minister. This is what's true of you already. You have the ability to have God make his appeal through you to unbelievers to be reconciled to God. Astounding. Absolutely amazing. So that's, that's the first one. Those kind of things. Now, let's look at B here, in, or the second one in Epaphroditus. This is what he says. Verse 26. For he has, talking about Epaphroditus, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. This is amazing. Can you imagine this? Epaphroditus is about to die. He's about to die. And his concern isn't, oh, I'm about to die. Everybody feel bad for me. I'm about to die. Instead is, I'm about to die for serving, but I'm really upset because the people I love, the Philippians, are upset that I'm about to die. And so I feel bad for them that they're so upset. Do you think like that? No, you don't. I don't. As soon as I'm sick, I'm one of those typical guys. Oh, I'm so sick. Christy, just take care of everything. I'm out of here for like five days. Oh, kids, bring me all my, like, we all, all guys are like that. You're all, like, no, I'm not like, yes, you are. I know you are. Guys have this like, they fall apart when they get sick. My temperature's 100. I'm, in, I'm gone for at least five days now. But imagine this, and this is what he's saying. I'm so sick to the point of death. I'm so ill that I'm going to die. And my concern is not, my own well-being, I'm so concerned for them because they're so upset. So here's the second thing, is that he longs to help others and has a genuine feeling for them. Now this is very similar to Timothy's first one, but there's a little bit of a difference. 
The difference is, we know from Timothy that Timothy just has a deep longing and affections for those people. But with Epaphroditus, we see that Epaphroditus has a deep longing and affection for those people. But those people have also, written in the text, a deep longing and affection back for Epaphroditus. Now, I'm not saying they don't for Timothy. I'm sure they do. I mean, he's Timothy, come on. But it's written in the text here for us that his deep affections for these people is so genuine and so true that even at the point of death, he's so concerned about them that we see that they have such a deep affection for them too. So as we're looking at that, this is what Calvin says. It is a sign of a true pastor, true minister, if you will, um, that while he was at a great distance from his people from Philippi, he was way over here in prison um, and has willingly detained by a pious engagement. In other words, he was very far from his people and he was doing the work of Christ. Even though he was doing the work of Christ, he was nevertheless affected with great concern for the people of Philippi. And he had a longing after them. And in learning that his, his people were so distressed on his account, he was concerned for their grief. He was concerned for their grief. And I've seen this even in our life, I've seen, in, in, of Remedy, just in our short almost four years, how deeply concerned you've been for people and whenever, even with me, and whenever things are going in our lives, how you have a deep love, affection for people. And I just want to say, continue to press in on that. Continue to make sure you do that. He's calling us to have deep love, affections for people. Not be so self-centered on us, but have deep love, affections for other people. Now, 29, uh, we can see in verse 28, 7 and 28, because indeed he was um, ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only... Um, and not only on him, but on me, lest I also should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's saying, basically, when he brought that gift, if he would have died when he brought that gift, I would have felt terrible. Knowing that you were trying to serve me and bring in me a gift and Epaphroditus died, I would have just been so upset. But praise God he didn't die, so I'm happy to send him back to you. And now that he c- comes, the anxiety in my heart will be lifted as well. You can see that where he says, I am more eager to send him to you that you may rejoice in seeing him and that I may be less anxious. So... Paul's like, I'm so glad he didn't die. Now, verse 29, this is pretty amazing. Um, because all the while we've been talking about, especially as we saw in 317, these are two examples, you should do what they say. 229 is going to say, not only should you emulate them, not only should you emulate them and try to be like them, but there's also a measure of honor that should be given to them. Look at 229. This is a side note, but I think it's, it's a noteworthy uh, side note, 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. There's something to note here where Paul's saying these great examples of men and women that are seasoned in the faith, that are older, they have um, lived in such a way where they have uh, given their life to Christ, they have fought the good fight, they have finished the race, they have kept the faith. These kinds of men and women that are seasoned saints, they they. They've poured out their entire life for Christ. Not only should you emulate them, but there should be a sense of honor that should be given to them. I think we've lost this in a little bit in our society today. I don't think we honor those who have gone ahead of us. Now, listen, I'm not talking about myself, okay? Don't think Fudge is saying, you should honor those that are older, and I'm older, so honor me. That's not what I'm saying. Like, I'm really young. I'm, I'm, I'm not who I'm talking about here. I'm talking about those who have gone on, and they're much more seasoned in the faith, they deserve our honor. So how can you honor one of these people today? I'm not saying buy them a, a $10 gift card to Target. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Like, how can you really honor them? What can you 
say to them? What can you write to them? What can you do for them that shows that not only do I hold you up in such esteem that I want to emulate you, I want to follow your example, but I honor you. That's something I think we've lost a lot in my generation that we should think about. Carson talking about this, saying that we don't, we don't, we shouldn't honor the the uh, untested, uh, immature people, but those who are more seasoned in the faith. D. A. Carson says, in short, emulate those people who have proven themselves in hardship, not the untested upstart and the self-preening peacock. I love how he uses his words. So, like, um, this is what it makes me think of. Have you seen this commercial where there's two guys and they're playing like I don't know some game and they can't see each other in different rooms and different buildings or whatever? One's in like a uh, uh, ho- a hospital waiting room and the other one's like in his living room and they're, they're sitting there playing with each other and one of them's winning and all of a sudden they're kind of talking to each other through mics. He's like, hey, are you there? Are you there? And it shows the picture and he's like peacocking around the, the, the waiting room. And he's like, are you peacocking right now because you just beat me in a video game? Like this is the mentality that I think sometimes we hold up the self-preening peacock, the one who seemed to, even though they're, they're really young, they've had whole lots of success and they haven't proven themselves. They haven't fought the good fight. They haven't finished the race. We, we give all kinds of esteem to them and honor to them. And what Paul is saying is the ones that have lived their life as seasoned saints, those are the ones that deserve the honor. This person might one day, but let them be a seasoned saint once before you start giving all the honor to the coolest guy in the room. More than likely, those that deserve the honor will always be the most uncool person in the room. That's the way it is with Christ, isn't it? We don't follow Jesus because he's cool. We follow Jesus because he's our savior. And by the way, Jesus invented the idea of cool. So he is the coolest. Anyway, that was really random. Um, here's the most cool thing of it all. Why did I say cool? It's in my head. So here's the best one of all of them. Here's, the, I think, the best one of all the examples that are ha- being given to us. It's about Paphroditus. Look what he says in 29. So receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For, here it is, he nearly died for the work of Christ. Remember the context. Holding out the example. What was the example of Epaphroditus? He nearly died for the work of Christ. And this is where it gets really interesting. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, that's an interesting way to put things, right? Lacking, what was lacking? They, they collected an offering, they loved him so much, and they, how could that be lacking in love affections? What was lacking was the personal presentation to it. Just because we get everything together, and we're like, we got a gift for you, Paul. Everything's together. Well, there's something lacking. He needs the gift, right? So what was lacking was the personal presentation of it. Now, this personal presentation, the act of bringing it to Paul while he's in prison is called what was lacking in your service to me. Now, that Greek word service, if you dive down into it, it has the roots of worship. There's two words for worship in New Testament, proskuneo and laturo. Proskuneo is the corporate worship where we gather together, we bow down, and we worship. It's what we do when we sing. Laturo is the idea of when we go out and we live a lifestyle of worship. So there's, there's a, 
They're both worshiping. What he's saying that there was a lacking of service. There was a lacking of worship. There was a lacking of lifestyle worship. So and as we put all that together, what we see here, the example that's being held out to us in the person of Epaphroditus is that, G- that he was willing to nearly die as a lifestyle worshiper for, of Christ. He was willing to give his life to be a lifestyle worshiper of Jesus. Oh, that's awesome. I think that's one of the best ones held out for us right there of all of them. They're all good, but man, he's saying, I was willing to give my life, worshiping Jesus with everything inside of me, even if it meant my life. Now, I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again this week. So what I'm not saying is, so you should go give your life for Jesus. Go die for Jesus. Go to the 1040 window. I'm not saying go die for Jesus, though that might be what the case is. I'm saying go live for Jesus. Everybody in this room, more than likely, will live to an old age. 80, 85, 90, 95. Very few people go give their life and die at 30 as a martyr. More than likely, none of you are going to be martyrs. So I'm not saying go be a martyr, though Christ might call that. I'm saying more than likely, all of you are going to live to be old in age. So be willing to do what he did. He did. Give your whole life worshiping Jesus. Be willing to risk your life for a lifestyle devoted towards Christ. That's pretty amazing. What a great example being held out to us. So I want to close with this idea of what it means to give our entire life for Christ, no matter the cost. From Romans chapter 8. And as we're closing, whatever the Holy Spirit's doing in your life, if any of these things have spoken to you by the power of the Spirit, and maybe there's some repentance that needs to be done, I just invite you to spend some time in, th- in thought and prayer. Maybe all you want to do is just stand and worship. But let me close with this idea from Romans chapter 8 when he talks about what it means to be a person that's willing to follow Christ no matter the cost. Because as we're thinking of the cost and thinking, well, if I'm going to die, does that mean Christ loves me less? If I'm going to be willing to do that, how does that measure up with the love of Jesus? Listen to this. Who indeed shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall me giving my entire life over to Jesus, does that separate me from the love of Christ because I died early? Because I was willing to give away all the the things of this world, not be involved in the trivial matters, but instead want to please the one. My aim is to please the one who enlisted me. Does that mean like Jesus loves me less because I'm throwing off all my desires and just pursuing his desires? This is what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, for Jesus' sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So if I am willing to give my life for Christ, no matter what the cost is, then I'm seeing that it's because he loves me that he's calling me to do that. Not because he doesn't. And then Paul, this is so awesome. Paul holds out for us every possible scenario of what could separate us from the love of Christ and says nothing does. Listen to this. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, if you die tomorrow for Jesus or you get to live to your 95 years old, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's calling you to live a lifestyle of worship for him because he loves you more than you've ever, ever conceived of. So as we hold out examples, I'm not saying be like Epaphroditus and Timothy in and of itself. I'm saying with your spiritual eyes, pursue Jesus, know Jesus, press into Jesus, go hard after Jesus, experience the love of Jesus, know him deeply and intimately, let your whole life be for him as a lifestyle worship. Spiritually watch that and look for with your physical eyes, people that are doing that, that you can follow along after and be looking all the while at people behind you that can follow you as you follow Christ. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll worship. If you want to talk to me, I'll be down front. Um, but I just ask more than anything that you be obedient to how the Holy Spirit's leading right now. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your spirit. I thank you for that whenever we're gathered together, you're here with us, that we can trust the Holy Spirit is here right now, teaching us, helping us understand your word, that he's here with us right now as we pray, helping us put together words and offering them up to you. I thank you that he's comforting us, and even that he's convicting us, reassuring us of your love for us. There's so many things your spirit's doing right now, and I just, I praise you for it. I pray for us all, and myself and my friends here, that as the spirit is doing all these things, that we wouldn't run from him, but we would run to him. Be with us now as we worship Jesus. Fill us with the Spirit and let us focus on Christ and His glory and reflect back to Jesus all the glory and worth that He is due. I pray, Father, that if anyone here doesn't know Jesus, if they're not a follower of Christ, that faith has arisen in their heart and they would put their faith in Jesus because of His death on the cross for them and the life that he now offers in forgiveness of their sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.